last round of aid, post office got $22 billion um, in aid for the uh, coronavirus. And they were supposed to take that money because there was a lot of a lot of types of mail that they normally deliver, mostly like paid marketing shit. Like if you haven't noticed, you probably received a shit ton less junk mail. All that stuff dropped off. So the post office was like really, really concerned that they were going to have a problem with revenue. What ended up happening, though, was everyone was getting orders taken to their home and the post office filled up a lot of the gap in the monetary money they were missing from all that junk mail with packages. But as a direct result, they were also having longer days because of the fact that those packages um, require a lot more handling, a lot more sorting, a lot more direct um a lot more direct action by an individual than some of the sortable mail. So they got the $22 billion for, for aid anyway, but then it got held up by Steve Mnuchin because he was asking that Treasury largely be in charge of aspects of the post office if they took any of that money. So the money went through Congress, was allocated, set aside, and then Mnuchin stepped in bigfoot and said, yeah, yeah, you can have some of this money, but seeing as I'm in charge of distributing it, I get to decide a whole shit ton of aspects of the post office. Um, and they said no. So they didn't, basically didn't take the money by turning the entire post office over to Treasury, which was a good thing. And then the packages that people were having delivered to their homes during COVID made up for the difference. So the, the cliff that we thought was going to happen at the beginning of COVID didn't quite happen. Now it's looking like it might happen in October or be anytime between October and May of next year. Anyway, so Trump just got approved a new postmaster general, Louis DeJoy. And Louis DeJoy used to work in logistics in the private sector. And he has since put out on Monday a huge list of things that will improve the efficiency of the post office. And as we know, efficiency is just a buzzword that they mean to cut things. Uh, it's McKinseyification. It's all of the problems of capitalism that we've been talking about, just wrapped up neatly in a nice little uh, bow with just one word. And uh, one of the big things is, is that the post office will now leave packages behind on the sorting floor rather than taking, going, making two trips or going back and getting them or making sure they go out on that day. So say you have a, a package that's slightly delayed to get to the post office in the morning, um, that, po that package will still go out that day under the previous rules because you have to deliver all the things, I guess. So now the post office master general is saying, in the name of efficiency, we're no longer going to do that. The other thing that they did was they cut back on overtime. As we mentioned, it takes longer to deliver packages than it does to deliver junk mail. So the, and the post office is notoriously short-staffed. So the letter carriers have been working longer hours to make up the difference. And the postmaster general said, no more overtime. So if, it do, if some post, post deliverer um, doesn't actually make it to your house, say, or the end of the street by the time he's worked eight hours. That's it. He's supposed to pack it in, go home, and be done. So some houses will no longer receive post on a given day. Sometimes it might be a couple of days before they actually get it. And that's pretty much unheard of. Uh, what they've done is they've basically transformed the post office, which is a service that's provided by the government utilizing tax dollars. And we've talked about the way that they've massively fucked with funding and pricing and everything else with the post office in order to kill it. And they've turned it into a business to try and compete with FedEx, UPS, and all the others, and now Amazon's own delivery service. Um, and that's just not what the post office is.
So it's essentially trying to kill the post office in order to privatize it. There's been a bipartisan effort to kill the post office. We've moved towards the discussing the post office and discussing a lot of these like, you know, public infrastructure as not returning on investment or not being profitable, et cetera. But there, you know, the post office infrastructure is not supposed to be profitable. It's funded, right? You don't, you know, it's not that the post office is not profitable. It's that it's being defunded or that its funding is being reallocated or being sort of messed with in various ways. One of the ways is which, you know, that has gotten a lot of attention or gets attention periodically is their retirement schema, which is unique in that they're required to fund like pensions up to what, 75, 70 years. Yeah. So 70 years in advance. And that's just not, not just current employees, but potential future employees as well. So it's, they have to provide funding for pensions for people they haven't even hired yet. But this is an, an attempt to defund and sort of privatize the post office. Similar, I want to talk about education because they're doing the same thing even more so there as well. But this is, like you said, this has been a bipartisan effort forever. Um, it doesn't seem new. It's always been the post office is constantly under attack. And, you know, the Democrats will say, oh, yeah, yeah, we should do something about the post office. But that 70, um, that 70 year requirement for retirement was actually half written by a Democrat. So. As always, you know, the, the, the quote unquote left in the political sphere is usually just a bunch of sellout grifters as well. Yeah, no, I'm just, uh, slightly disappointed to find out that my watching of The Postman is not going to help me be any more informative in this particular section. But part of the thing that I've been picking up from what you've been saying and also what uh, I've been reading is that it does fit into the kind of the larger systemic nature of defunding and privatizing that Republicans have always been doing, but as particularly since the Democratic third way has taken off has been part of their uh, analysis too and or their their approach to problem solving as well is looking at pri- the private market uh, for uh, solutions and in this way by deconstructing the post office functional services uh, and the kind of lack of a need for scraping off surplus uh, value to go towards profit for a a handful of wealthy owners it's uh, resulted in it being able to provide a competitive service that is also uh, very functional uh, both uh, competitively priced and uh, competitively uh, competes competitively with regular delivery services and that's been the kind of part of the impetus to go at it through the bureaucratic means by requiring making these obscene requirements that we don't have for private industries like for instance the automakers who had in part of the bailout uh, included large cuts to pension programs that they had promised workers that had worked for decades already whereas the post office is being required to make good on promises that to people that they haven't even hired yet like you said about the fact that we're we're requiring, we're, we're, we have eliminated the profit sector. A lot of these profit-driven delivery services like DHL, FedEx, and UPS use the post office's infrastructure to do like the last mile for a lot of project, a lot of products that they actually ship. So especially in rural areas, the post office is usually some of the only people there. Like there are places in America where the UPS and FedEx don't even go. They'll use their own infrastructure to get to the nearest major hub and then shift it off to the post office because it's much cheaper for the post office to do that because the post office mandate is to deliver to every American address. Well, I mean, that's the thing, right? We know that not only is it the post office, but there are a lot of services like roads, right? example that if it weren't for the government you know rather it wasn't for taxes weren't for the government they would not exist in rural areas just because it's not as profitable to put them there right you know so when it comes to stuff like 
a rural uh broadband rural post office like rural like rural uh services we know that the like that companies just simply wouldn't exist there without the government infrastructure to begin with but even more so like, i think you know what you both laid out is like this particular strategy for like getting rid of uh popular infrastructure because that's what this is the, the post office is the most popular institution in the united states of america if i'm not mistaken right like it's one of the most popular ones it has like a 90 plus percent approval weight rate way higher than fucking congress or any of the other sort of like sacred institutions of our country that we sort of think of like uh the presidency the supreme court the media etc etc and so all that can really be done is to make it shittier and shittier so people no longer feel so good about it, right? Because if you try to touch push the post office the way it is now, people are going to resist. The post office is one of the few jobs that people of color historically were able to get that were, was a pension job, a union job that would uplift them from poverty, uh, which is why there's still some sort of ire there towards the post office. But, you know, even more so, like we've seen this strategy with other essential services like the NHS, where it's like you just sort of make it shittier over time until you manage until you are able to manufacture this sort of breakdown between the people and the institution and then you can privatize it and you're right that they're doing the same thing in new york city and they've done this and they've used sort of this disaster these disasters to sort of you know shock doctrine through uh various legislations in the past like you know katrina was used to make charter schools the dominant uh school form in north in sort of a parish county new orleans post katrina and now it sounds like you know cuomo is partnering with fucking uh bill gates to do the same or try to do the same in new york city right especially as there is this i don't know uh fight between state and federal governments to send kids back to school in, in october or September yeah i mean and the, the thing is like i come from a long line of teachers and i have a bunch of people who are teaching now and adair probably can speak a lot more about this but like i'm hearing a lot of personal pushback to this program and one of the things that really concerns me is that Betsy DeVos has stated that, um, you know, if te- parents don't feel comfortable sending their kids back, there might be some sort of monetary recomp- uh, compensation that can be given to parents if they don't feel comfortable sending their kids back. So to me, that sounds like this is a backdoor effort to completely dismantle public schools. Well, I'm actually in graduate school now uh, becoming a certified teacher where I live that requires a master's degree, which is one of the ways uh, – that this kind of thing has kind of really been going on for a while, right? So like we've been seeing with the post office, um, they said, you know, you have to fund your pensions X number of years out. To become a teacher in a lot of places, they require you actually now get a master's degree, which in right, when you first say like, you're like, oh yeah, no, that sounds like it makes sense, except the master's degree is what's required to teach university, right? So I have to go get a subject degree, um, which in many cases actually doesn't even allow you to teach, right? There's a lot of college programs that won't let me get, won't let me go in even though I have a math degree to teach math because you have to take very specific classes. So they manufactured the teacher shortage, um, right, to begin with. So there was a manufactured teacher shortage in part because of how difficult it's, it is to become a teacher these days. And now coronavirus is being used as a way to really privatize uh, public education as well. And one of the ways that they're doing that is they're do it's it's this two-fold two-pronged approach. There's on the one hand, they're threatening federal aid to school districts, which isn't terrible. Like it's it sucks, but the vast majority of your local schools funding comes from state and local governments. And so that's where this kind of becomes a 
more, it becomes a lot more fucked up, right? So depending on where you live, you're going to see a couple of things. You're going to either see your state and local government kind of follow suit with the Department of Education and say whatever their guidelines are, this is what we're going to follow and fuck you otherwise. Um, and so that, on the one hand, is going to severely impact how schools will progress going forward. And then you have the other kind of school where they're going to be like, where the state and local governments are going to be like, okay, we're not going to do that. But, right, we're still seeing this push to open up states. And so there's no way to do that without sending kids back to school. And so the coronavirus is being used to really put a lot of people in a position where a lot of people are going to get sick really quickly. Teachers are writing their wills. So you've got a teacher shortage to begin with. You are now going to see a situation where some schools are going to uh, not receive funding. Other schools are going to be forced to open, uh, if not because of funding, but simply because poor parents of poor students have to go to school. And if they don't, they're going to risk going to jail. And this is going to see a large increase in really sick teachers. Anybody that's taught in the school or worked with kids can tell you the first few weeks of school, whatever the kids have, you get. And so if you're running in, you know, you've got your average class has what, 30 kids and you're teaching six or seven classes a day, right? You're seeing a ton of fucking children. You're going to get really sick. You're going to catch whatever they have. It's likely that you're going to get COVID. And so you're going to see an increase actually in teachers dying. Uh, yeah, three, you know, uh, three teachers shared a classroom in Arizona. Two of them, uh, all three came down with COVID. One of them has died. One of them is critical. And it's a lot cheaper. To, that was summer school. Yeah, and it's a lot cheaper too, real quick, just with this, uh, because it is, I think it's important when we talk about education, charter schools are so much cheaper. It's so much cheaper to pay to do a charter school. Uh, I, I had an interview with a school in New York, and it ended up being a charter school, and they were going to pay me $40,000 a year to teach in Brooklyn. They said, this is enough for you to live on. Uh, you know, a regular state paid teacher in the area that I'm living in now is making $65,000 a year to start with. That's a $25,000 difference. It's entirely a profit model and the education standards are so much worse. And it's really, really hard to teach consistently and teach well if you haven't had the proper training and education. So really this is just showing kind of more of that capitalist instinct, right? To privatize everything, strip the post office away, which is going to really disproportionately affect rural and poor communities. And then the same kind of thing here with teaching. There's already a massive teacher shortage. And if you force people to go back to school in the fall, you're going to see a lot more teachers die. You're going to see a lot of the, just an inability for public schools to function. And they're going to just say, well, public schools failed. Let's just see what charters can do. Let's let, you know, private industry handle this. Right. And I think that Betsy DeVos saying that she's going to give compensation, monetary compensation to families that don't feel comfortable sending their kids to school is literally just a backdoor methodology of creating more charters in areas that are against that. I guess this was always the conservative danger of coronavirus, that like it was just going to create a two-tiered society where like you have, you know, those people who can work from home, those people who can't, those people who can afford to get their kids the proper education under quarantine uh, conditions, those who couldn't, right? You know, obviously, you know, mapping out on class and race and you know traditional socioeconomic lines uh but now it seems like I, they're not going to even be able to cordon off this level of suffering entirely to traditionally vulnerable populations and it's going to bleed over and i think that's why we've been seeing a lot more of these like the decline of america articles that have been coming out which i mean are correct but like when they say decline in this situation decline of america is being defined just by the decline in america's ability to make the most comfortable parts of our population feel as though they you know like that they are so comfortable i think a lot had that a lot of it has to do with like the rest of the world getting over coronavirus while we're still stuck in varying forms of the first wave around the country 
Yeah, I found even myself looking at some of the European countries and being like, man, they must be faking those stats. They can't be that much better. And I was like, no, no, yeah. <laughs> that's We're just that bad. But the point I wanted to make about kind of the connection between schools and uh, the post office is they are also some of the last, where the last vestiges of organized labor still persist. Uh, the post off, the post, uh, postal service uh, has collective bargaining agreements with seven different unions representing 500,000 uh, employees, according to their website. And so like, and then teachers also are a large organizing group. And so if there's going to be a group, particularly in the, to the COVID point, that's going to be able to stand up against the working conditions that are going to be obviously unacceptable and do it in an organized fashion, that's able to enact uh, kind of the kind of uh, changes that are needed in order to actually some sort of uh, reasonable way facilitate uh, maintaining our educational system. The only way that's going to happen is with like an organized labor movement and with large strikes and teachers are one of the few groups that are still remaining that have that kind of organizational base already in existence. And you're not talking about trying to create it overnight in order to resist these types of things. And if the, if teachers are one of, are, are beat out and the post offices lose, lose their battle, then the non-organized workers are going to be hopeless. For instance, uh, like charter schools, only about 10% give or take of the workers there in various states are uh, unionized. Whereas uh, in public, other public institutions, you have a much higher rate of uh, teachers represented by unions. And it's that organizational power is what provides the workers with any sort of uh, kind of opposition to the systemic forces that subjugate them into the most oppressive working conditions and the wor and in this case basically being put to work in the midst of a plague and with virtually little to no protections even the most basic and rudimentary ones that any uh you know scientific community is going to uh, suggest right i mean like the, even before covid you looked at who was having the most impact in terms of labor and it was the wildcat strikes from the teachers across the country we had more strikes wildcat strikes from teachers these past a uh, couple of years than we've had in decades and they've had massive public outcries, even in red states going, what the fuck are you doing defunding our teachers? Uh, you had like town halls where, you know, people that used to show up for tea parties were showing up to scream about the fact that there are no people. I think people are getting more involved with local politics just generally now. I mean, as we see, there are a lot of people, more people going to city council meetings. There are a lot more people going to sort of like the new civilian review board meetings that are popping up. And that, you know, that bodes well, at least in my opinion, for people going towards these school board meetings. You know, there is still room for people to get involved in like local school board politics, you know, local politics at the, you know, level of the school board. And try to shape policy there, right? Because as Adair said, a lot of this stuff is being decided by, you know, local bodies and not necessarily, and only a small portion is coming from the federal level. At the same time, though, I don't know. Honestly, like, it's hard for me to imagine, like, wanting to send my kid back to school, like, during a pandemic. But, like, to be fair, a lot of these motherfuckers, like, two days into the pandemic was like, you guys don't know how privileged you are to not have a child. And I was like, I don't know what the proper, you know, language here is. But, like, I mean, I, I I don't know what the PC terminology here is, but I don't think you should say like not having your like dumbass child is a privilege. Like, you know, like that's going to like when your kid uh, grows up and finds like his father or mother's tweet. And it's just like, frankly, teachers deserve a million dollars. And uh, if this dumbass kid asks me for one more thing, you know, I'm just going to blow my fucking brains out. It's just like, like, I'm sorry, your kid's such a fucking bummer, man. But yeah, I mean, so I, I think people I don't know. America is a weird place despite thinking it of itself as like a very freedom loving society america ends up mind flooding itself into being the most like conformist piece of shit like on the planet and so like i can see like just 
people sending their kids back to school because they've been told to go back to work and you know like what are you going to do it's i mean it sounds silly but we're still in the midst of blm uprisings and you know there's there was like this attempt to paint the you know the protest as spreading the virus which kind of didn't take because it, it wasn't really bore out to be true by the scientific facts but also it's just like yeah i mean say what you want but the fact that like people weren't out in the streets like after a month or two of no rent cancellation and their debt going up speak like volumes about the american people it's like i don't i don't know how you guys could say you're committing crimes to pay rent i mean they can't even evict you until next month and your unemployment's got two weeks left before you know that those bonuses are gone so i mean you guys really just i don't like it is kind of absurd to the point that they've gotten where they're just kind of I think people kind of I've talked to some people and they have in the back of their mind that this is going to be problematic that, you know, 30 percent people weren't able to pay their mortgages or rent or whatever. And last month and that's been happening and growing over the last few months and unemployment's about to run out and the eviction protections are about to run out. And like, what's going to happen then? Ohio put it in a fucking uh, sports arena to speed the process through. They put the eviction court in a fucking arena. That's to speed some dystopian the process. shit. That's like that's like some shit that you would that you would um right. see in that them white shows people like like um the uh the handmaid's tale. Not the Korean one. It's been uh, interesting like uh like last time I mentioned masks, uh, it was the next day or the that Friday that they ended up started requiring masks to be worn by not just the business and the workers, but also if you're inside most businesses. And it's been interesting just to see how often that that is being done or and like a lot of it has to do with what I've noticed anyway is kind of signage. The more aggressive the signage is, the more people I notice inside wearing the masks, the masks, the less aggressive the signage, the less people I see inside wearing masks. I mean, honestly, people take like aggressive ass to wear masks like a challenge. Like, like they're going to be more and more fights regarding like people not more or less like oh, people not wearing masks in places where people are being asked to wear masks because it violates their freedom because Americans can't think of a concept of freedom that isn't like rooted in like dominating or like superseding someone else's freedom. But I mean, going back to your previous point about like things running out like unemployment running out it's just another example of like people having this overabundance of faith in time that eventually things will just like work out and like not in some sort of like real like optimistic way but like there's going to be an infinite amount of time to somehow correct our social problems and that there won't ever be a need to like actually exert like more aggressive pressure on our political figures you know outside of electoralism to accomplish certain things because you know through electoralism we'll be able to eventually get to a good point in enough time but you know just like with people unemployment running out not that that's their fault obviously because we're in a terrible situation just like with a lot of other protections running out just like there being over five million people who have lost their uh health insurance because they've lost their job under covid it's like a lot of this has been falling under into the pattern of like, well, the Democrats selling us a bill of sales that there'll be time to work on getting Medicare for all or single payer layer. It's like that we right now we have to focus on playing defense on Obamacare because Obamacare is the best that we could have done and Lieberman and blah, 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 blah. Like and all of these like excuses because they are just excuses that sound good or like sound reasonable when you're not in a pandemic. But like what we're seeing with the pandemic in my mind is that we've just run out of time. It's like we we ran out of time to get universal health care in the sense that like both it 
ask like a literal infrastructure, healthcare infrastructure, and the expansions that would have taken place while I'm sorry, um, enacting it. Uh, but also just like the ideological conversation, the ideological shift in people that would have occurred after that infrastructure was built or as was being built would have done more to insulate us. It's like, it's just too late. You know, it's just too late to put those things into place. We can work on them, those things now, but we have to at least acknowledge that, yeah, it's, it's sort of too late for them. Like realistically, we've had the ability to have universal healthcare. We chose not to do it. We chose to continue going down these private things. And I think that's one of the biggest things that is, you know, kind of illuminating with regard to I think even in tying this back in like the post office stuff just American apathy and this demand for immediate gratification right this idea uh, and the right and I think that ties into this idea that the private market is going to always do something great and things are just going to be fine because we're American nothing ever really bad can happen here but we've lost over a hundred thousand people due to this virus <clears throat> our death toll is going to continue skyrocketing our infection rates are going to continue to skyrocket and so it just and people just don't care they just don't care because all they want to do is feel gratified in you know in in ways that are insignificant and they want to be they want to go out and they want to reestablish this you know again like these fantasies of authority these fantasies of you know wealth and opulence that they that they think that they deserve in getting to dominate dominate your server's life for 40 minutes at Applebee's, you know, where you probably will get, you will get sick from that and you might have somebody that you care about end up in the hospital, but you might have good enough insurance that you're fine, where that waiter's probably not gonna have insurance and will likely pass if it gets really bad. And the thing is, is like, I think it was Deloitte that just tracked the rate of increase with spending habits and they determined that it was the thing that correlated the most, and it was a heavy correlation, not necessarily a causation, but a heavy correlation, was in-person credit card use in restaurants and dining facilities. We know, so the, we know the virus is airborne, and this is where I'm making a little science right? So we know, that, we know the virus is airborne. This has been something that's been signed on by hundreds of scientists, the WHO, all these people have come out and said, this virus is airborne. And so you combine that with a couple of factors, right? You combine that with the more, if it's airborne, you've got, an incredible amount of of particles that come from your lungs whenever you breathe out and that's going to diffuse through the air um until it reaches some kind of equilibrium right so we're going to see it spread out it's not going to stay clumped in one spot so it's going to spread all over the place and because you've got a lot of you know moving air in like a restaurant your those particles are going to spread out a lot faster than they otherwise would right and we see of course the really dumbass arguments about mask wearing uh, for those of you at home who are listening and are needing to have this conversation with people, here's some of the science behind it. Before you go into it there, I don't even really understand that conversation. And I'm going to just be perfectly honest because I wasn't paying enough attention back in March or January or whatever, like they were having the first concert. I just thought everyone was supposed to be wearing masks. And I thought that you were, I thought that the only reason they told you not to wear masks because they were running short on masks and they, they wanted to preserve them until they could have a higher supply. But apparently there was something else going on. I, I really don't remember. And I, and I think, again, this goes to kind of our 
conversation that we had an episode or two ago about like Americans being unable to act like adults and people just sort of go like, well, it's understandable that if you tell Americans one time that they shouldn't wear a mask, if you try to change that, they'll just fucking flip their shit like a bunch of gorillas. You're like, like, okay, well, someone may have said at some point that masks weren't effective. And so like now you can't, that you can't ever update that information because Americans just like will flip their shit. Like what kind of country is this? This is not to be rude. This is me just being practical. I was like, Americans are not going to follow this. I agree with what you said earlier there about like people just want to go to Applebee's and play manager over like a bunch of fucking like servers because yeah they might be like a project manager or whatever bullshit job title they have at their like tech startup but they don't actually manage people like it's just like a title so to make people like feel still like they're they're not just like literal working class but I will say you know I've kind I'm kind of being resistant on like being too harsh on like people individually i suppose like obviously there are people who are going to disney i mean obviously there has to be a, a limit right there are people who are like going to disney world and like just like fucking around there and i'm like okay well look you know we have like we have to be fair right I can't, I can't worry about everybody but like at a certain point no offense but america fucking sucks like our government has abandoned us completely um to just like die during a plague while it like plays war games with china um and like basically like for like that sort of weird coddled centrist class like that where it's like you know so much of america has always been propped up so much of america's problems have always been like thinly propped up or papered over by like people's ability to like lord over some kind of underclass that of course when like they've just been abandoned by the government all they really want to do is continue to like find some underclass to lord over the play manager over like for some form for some sense of normalcy uh and also to exercise the power that they can have and you know in a very powerless helpless situation but also it's just like americans are so used to our government just like giving us shit or like not doing anything to help us that like all people can really think to do is go and start looking for who's not wearing masks and i kind of want to resist that mentality too because it's like yeah like that's kind of like the carbon footprint mentality it's like yeah well technically maybe if everybody stopped using car if every individual stopped using carbon in their personal lives like that might make an impact on the carbon you know the carbon the total carbon expenditure but that kind of obscures the fact that there are these large institutions that are like contributing to the problem a lot worse it's like we know that like a lot did like there aren't any countries that handled COVID-19 well that was able to do it like without the infrastructure of a government just with like a general collectivist mentality it's like you kind of have to have that government infrastructure and America just simply doesn't have it we also don't have the ideological infrastructure but instead of so instead of that you know we're just going to go out and look to see like which populations aren't following the rules like you know is it the are, is it the gay people on fire island is it the black people who don't believe in germs or some shit is it the like the white witches in bushwick is it you know is it like uh, is it people in the south is it people who want to go to the gym is it people who want to get their haircut is it the open up america protesters that's all well and good and it's all well and true but i think we've kind of skipped over the step where it's like okay but the government should be doing something I feel like you kind of touched on the kind of American ideological solution to this, which is grit, grit the teeth and kind of bear through it and find somebody to blame. And the, we're, we're going through that. Like uh, Rush Limbaugh said, you know, reference the Donner Party as, you know, an example of basically what we're looking to try to emulate here and getting through COVID. And you've seen there was a lieutenant governor that early came out and said that, you know, basically the elderly, elderly people should be ready to sacrifice themselves for uh, the economy. And I'm sure there's going to be even more lines basically with that 15,000 uh, kids line is basically 
along the same lines of you know a young generation sacrificing themselves for the future and so on and so forth and that's just kind of where we're at and then if, when you need to blame somebody for the suffering that that causes in your individual life then you look to some marginalized group and if you manage to make it through it and and if you have to do some foul dirty shit in order to do it or and you manage to uh, or even worse, uh, benefit from the situation, then it gets encapsulated as you pulling yourself up by your bootstraps by making it through and exploiting the situation. Yeah, however, it's meritocracy. Uh, you may have in order to make it is through. It, and like, so, like, that's that's the American. Yeah, COVID that's is the, the American COVID ideology. Is God that giving America, uh, you know, regents exam. But please go ahead, Adair. Sorry. Yes, the U.S. government has to be doing something, and that's the biggest. That is the biggest reason why we're it, we're at the place we are right now. The reality of the situation is. We don't have that. And so the science is telling us that you have to wear a mask. If you are not wearing a mask, you are actively contributing to the spread. If you're not wearing a mask and you are going outside and you're interacting with people, you are actively. I'm just say you're a remarkably stubborn asshole if you're both listening to the show and still not wearing a mask. Go on. <laughs> right. But like one of the things that we don't talk about enough, though, like when, when it comes to this is, yes, there absolutely there is a hyper focus on the individual portion of things. But this is also different than climate change in that it is a pandemic spread person to person. And the more that you go outside without a mask, the higher you the, more, the higher chance you're going to be infected and the higher chance that you're going to infect other people. And then there's still a lot of things that we don't actually know about uh, COVID and the long-term after effects. We're seeing strokes in young people. We're seeing lung, heart, uh, lung and heart damage. We're seeing brain, I think there's been some issues with brain function, cognitive ability, things like that, that are going on uh, post COVID. There's all sorts of different really fucked up things that can come out of this. Autopsies so they're finding in Italy, are, uh, there's blood clots all over the body. Yeah, and clotting can cause all sorts of other issues depending on where they form, and so that can manifest in a variety of different ways, making it harder to identify in the when they're exhibiting the symptoms actively while they're still alive and won't be discovered until autopsy continues. And so there's just so much going on with it. So I think that, yes, the government needs to, we, we have to demand the government do better. We also have to demand that our neighbors do better, right? This is one where it has to be both, uh, both approaches have to be taken. Well, I mean, here's what I would say. I mean, obviously, like, it, it's a hard line to draw because you're right. Like, we can't just absolve bad actors because, like, the government's not doing anything. So, like, fuck it. Why bother? Right. Because that's just not how it works. But, like, really, it's, it's you know, it's both in. And the reason why is because it's not as though this individualistic mentality of, like, I don't have to wear a mask and it violates my rights to wear a mask. And, like, the idea that, like, me wearing a mask might meaningfully contribute to, like, the health of the nation, et cetera, et cetera. Like, the idea, like, that's all partially right we don't have a government who's doing the right thing it's just like yeah it's a feedback effect it's like you know both are working in tandem and both are exacerbating each other it's like if we had the kind of mentality where people were like actually considered public health seriously you know it would be a situation where like the government would be and theoretically more moved towards like actively feeling as though they have to like do something otherwise people might just start burning shit down and you know because of covid as opposed to because of black lives which you know are being disproportionately taken by covid19 you know i I just want to one more point to what you were saying earlier, Adair. Initially, when everything first started, people were like, oh, COVID-19 is going to be a great equalizer, et cetera, et cetera. And like people rightfully pointed out that that's not true. But I think there has been a little bit of ripping off of the mask, not of like an equality between like all classes in society, but people who previously 
if not because they didn't lack the language of like class or lack the you know understanding of like the proletariat like considered themselves to be more of like the you know people say who say i'm actually a capitalist i don't you know i'm not one of the filthy socialists people like that who are like not capitalist i think a lot of those people are seeing that no matter how much money you make on that paycheck week to week you know you know whether it's like 250k or like where you're a basketball player and it's like 100 million or whatever how much fucking money they make they will put you back to work during a pandemic only by chance that your your job could be done remotely that you won't be put back to work but like government doesn't yeah, care and even the negotiations that are happening with baseball and baseball has a pretty strong union are fucking sickening it, adair made the good point that this is not like climate change entirely i think it's in some ways it's like climate change where we are rapidly running out of time when it comes to climate change if we're not already out of time and people still feel as still like there's just infinite amount of time to turn this what was the sanders revolution or the blm uprising into like a meaningful climate change you know movement it's remarkable to me that we managed to pass down so much knowledge but it seems that the more i've looked at history either in the united states or larger that every hundred years we go through these cycles give or take 50 years sometimes and it's it largely seems to be as i'm living through it just people just not just completely oblivious to what's going on around them both uh, contemporaneously and historically and you mentioned the kind of healthcare thing and that made me think about like we we did try to do some sort of healthcare thing decades ago and the, the irony was is basically obamacare and it was nixon and democrats uh, opposed it because it w didn't go far enough and then since then uh, we've done lesser of evil voting for the next, uh, whatever, 40, 50 years. And here we are fighting to possibly save Obamacare from a Trump and not anywhere near or closer to Medicare for all after, after Biden recently again just outright said, no, I'm not for that. Like, I'm not doing it. Right. And I mean, I was even looking at um, cartoons from the last pandemic, like a uh, hundred years ago. And the Spanish flu and the cartoons were saying like, wear your fucking mask basically. And people were doing the same thing as they are now. We were completely oblivious. Voting is on people's minds again, I guess, uh, mildly because someone said that Angela Davis is going to vote for Joe Biden. Okay. I mean, and of course my first thought was like, okay, <laughs> like free country vote. Like it's still, it's still a free country. It's still, there hasn't been like food riots yet. So like, go ahead. She can vote for Joe Biden. If she wants like, but apparently the, you know, as with everything else is like when anyone who a liberal finds out that the left has read a book of like says that they'll do something that liberals kind of agree with they go well i don't Noam chomsky says he's gonna vote for joe biden and like, so like what do you know that he does like, well, i know my own fucking name but no i mean so like adair what's going on with uh angela davis so what's kind of what's currently going around in some of the more online spheres angela davis was on rt and she said she's going to vote for Joe Biden because she thinks that he's going to be more responsive to mass political movement, mass people movements, right? Whereas Trump has shown that he's not at all responsive to that. And so there's been a lot of snarky articles written, uh, some of them titled, so you're more progressive than uh, Angela Davis. Maybe. <laughs> I, I mean, I'm not know what progressive means. Right. I'm, I might and be so more communist than Angela Davis. It depends. You know, I'd have to look into it. And so that's one of the things that's been going on, right? So Angela Davis is an avowed communist. She's been a Marxist for years and years and years and has done a lot of really great intellectual work. Um, and one of the things that I, one of the reasons why I wanted to bring up electoralism is I'm of the, the so, and I'm, I'm going to state my position here because I disagree with Angela Davis on voting for Biden. I don't think it's worth a goddamn. In fact, I don't think electoralism is worth a goddamn as a whole in America. So, right, being from Seattle, I have a very specific, uh, I'm, we're lucky, right? Seattle is lucky in that we have an actual workers' party. We have Socialist Alternative. And Socialist Alternative gave us uh, Shama Sawant, 
who is a council member, who is an active socialist, who's actually winning victories for the working people in Seattle on the greater Puget South region, right? She uh, is, was instrumental in getting the past Amazon tax, tax Amazon that passed recently, as well as getting the Seattle City Council to commit to 50% defunding, uh, 50 defunding of the Seattle Police Department, which is a major step into the, into the total abolishment of the police department in Seattle as a whole, right? So these are massive victories that have been won by working people. And the argument that's going around right now is saying, see, look at this, electoralism does work. But my argument here, my argument uh, is, as to why I disagree with uh, Angela Davis, is that it only works when there is a party that is there for the worker, that it's an informed workers party that is actively going out of its way to make sure that workers' rights and views and needs are represented. And we don't see that in America, particularly at the presidential level, right? So the, we have the Party for Socialism and Liberation, which is what I'm planning to vote this, in, in this November. However, I just don't think electoralism works. I don't think there's gonna be a point in the US and I, so I'm, I'm curious as to like what you all think about that and whether or not you agree with Angela Davis and you think that there's any point in vote, voting for Joe Biden. Oh, I respect Angela Davis uh, immensely. He does a lot of work and, and had tons and been through quite a bit. And so like if, if it was for no other reason than she's tired, then I would understand even if I disagree. But uh, like at the on the other side of it, uh, she also supported uh, Obama and 08 and she also supported uh clinton in 16 and bobby rush who is also pretty instrumental and a revered figure although has notably been uh, less doesn't consider himself a communist anymore or anything like that you know was supportive of bloomberg at one point and so like the idea is that you can do a lot of this work and be substantial a substantial figure and you can still have bad opinions and you can have drastic changes in your political philosophy and there's a lot that can happen after you write or you contribute these great thing these great pieces of work and so i think that's an important thing to just kind of consider in general when it comes to whatever happens to a particular figure throughout the 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 process of their life and where they end up and then also that this this is just the first time that liberals give a shit what angela davis th thought because they're actually worried that people might not vote for joe biden and think that she has influence over those people and so her saying that matters to them but they didn't they didn't really care in 2016 they didn't care in 12 2012 or 2008 when basically obama threw reverend wright under the bus which was essentially his connection to the radical black tradition of Chicago to the degree that he was that and not connected to more the daily machine, which is the opposite of that. Maybe before 2019, I, in 2016, before 2016, I probably believed in electoralism about maybe 50%. I thought, okay, yeah, there's a shot. Then we saw the cheating in 2016 and I'm like, okay, and then 2019, when it looked like Bernie was going to do something, I was really excited for like a possible electoral outcome that would be, you know, somewhat in line with a, a step towards any type of redistribution. And I was got excited for that as well. And then just in both cases, it was the outright cheating combined with the obfuscation by anyone whose job is journalist of that outright cheating that made me realize that electoralism is dead in this country. Um, there is no pathway for any type of progress, I don't want to say progressive, progressive, but progression towards a socialist state in America through electoralism. And so that, and the main body standing in the way of that as Adair has said is the Democratic Party. So as long as the Democratic Party is still alive, 
um, I don't think that we're electoralism is worthwhile. So I don't think vote. I don't think voting for Biden is worth it. And I disagree with Angela Davis. But like you said, uh, Richard, I respect the fuck out of her. Yeah. And then uh, just I wanted to kind of also just touch quickly that locally there is some semblance or sense to uh, not necessarily electoralism, but organizing not for election purposes, but using elections as part of an elect, uh, organizing strategy to gather uh, organizational structure and to reach out to people and to make connections. And then also at voting as a as like just one thing, like just, uh, you know, just something that you do, like clipping your toenails or something as a part of the the actions that are uh, a part of making progress. But it's not as if once you vote, then you've done the thing and now you're done and you can watch, sit back and look at, revel at your work. It's, that's not how voting it works at all, whether you can take it as an election, like electoralism or as a part of a larger strategy towards enacting non-reformist reforms at the local level in order to strengthen your organizational opportunities so that you can build these types of uh, political organizations that can have uh, the type of capabilities that are going to be necessary to replace what is going to continue to be lacking from the federal and state governments of essentially just providing the uh, basic services and the basic kind of no like information and spreading of common sense that is going to be required to survive with an, being abandoned by a federal government with the crumbling infrastructure and uh, you know massive job loss and no health and no health coverage and all those types of things is like there is an aspect to local organism but at the national level as Adair points out without an actual party that has any sort of functional power at the national level in a two-party system you it's completely locked out and that there's it, you fall prey to even more to that, you know, oh, I'm going to vote for Obama and then, you know, kick back and, you know, my job's done here. And you get even uh, less of the actual organizational movement type stuff that is required to push, to do the kinds of pushing that Angela Davis is suggesting that Joe Biden, in a theoretical world, would be slightly more open to, I guess, than Donald Trump. But to what effect and to what end is kind of the the point that I think a lot of people are gra- grabbing at and that he's so stubborn still now before the even like the primary is kind of over, but technically he hasn't even gotten the nomination yet. And he's still worried about appealing to like uh, reasonable Republicans and, and like already at this point. And so, uh, and that's why he didn't in his climate plan, he hasn't uh, committed to any sort of banning of fracking or any of the even kind of slightly more progressive aspects of the, Green New Deal towards uh, energy climate change and uh, like it's essentially even if you accept the idea that voting for Joe Biden is the right thing and and will lead us somewhere is like his stated plan is to lead us into global ecological catastrophe. That's his plan. So like even if he got his way, if Republicans didn't get in the way and all he had to do is just pass his agenda, we're still doomed. That's fucking stupid. And I think that's the point I wanted to make with a caveat to exactly what you were saying earlier about electoralism at a local level is that you have to understand that if you actually get to a position where you're able to threaten the position of anyone who's making these types of decisions or to influence anyone like a Joe Biden towards these decisions, the apparatus of the National Party, as well as you know other actors at a national level, be it the CIA, FBI, or any of the alphabet soup agencies, and their unlimited funds are going to come down on you like the hammer of God. So be prepared to know that 
you can make only a limited difference. And once your difference gets big enough to actually attract national attention, you have to be prepared to accept defeat and still persevere, push on and try to keep your organization together in the face of that uh, obstruction. I mean, just to clarify, look, you know, obviously I respect the shit out of Angela Davis, right? You know, I, I am familiar with her work in critical resistance. You know, I admire her work as a prison abolitionist, you know, and I was quite gratified or, you know, to see her, you know, at least see some recognition with these mass BLM and like protests and also just like the mainstreaming of prison abolition and defunding the police. Uh, at the same time, though, it's just like I don't respect liberals at all. It's just like and that's really what it is. Angela Davis didn't ask me this fucking question. Some random liberal did. It's just like, you know, Angela Davis didn't, didn't ask me to like justify voting for Joe Biden because she wouldn't do that. It's like because she knows people have justified reasons for feeling like, you know, disillusioned by the system. This is most likely some liberal who just heard about Angela Davis last week or like vaguely remembered an article or a portion of her book that they read from sociology class 101 and or and like being retweeted by a bunch of other liberals who are in a desperate search for like the left's manager. Like that's all they want. They they, they find themselves completely comfortable out you know engaging in this sort of like weird corporate neurotic paradigm uh because that's where they have all this power that they can wield that otherwise outside of their you know they don't have they're just general alienation like the rest of us and so they're you know they're looking for the less manager they don't have any identity all their favorites are on pedophile lists and so anytime they hear that the left has read a book about somebody if by somebody they just think it's our manager and they ask us you know the, to justify our ideology against this person but it's like those people very rarely ask that of us they just presented an argument it's only like the liberals who use that argument antagonistically to like go okay well your god says this then why don't you do it it's like well well because like they're not our manager they know they're not our manager they're just asking us something or presenting an argument to us and they're expecting us to take it at face value it, it sounds silly but liberals don't have any individuality so they can't understand that it's like all they do is flit from like you know one political fandom to the other at the drop of a hat and I am fully capable of engaging with people's ideas on an individual idea by idea basis. You know, when it comes to electoralism, you know, I think that there is value at the local level. And that's where we're going to have to start really trying to secure power at the national level. Her argument, I understand it, is that, yeah, like, you know, when there is a mass BLM type uprising, Joe Biden will undoubtedly be more amenable to that than Donald Trump. I don't think you can deny that. At the same time, I think that what we've done, and I've mentioned this before, is that we've looked at this gap between Joe Biden, how amenable Joe Biden is, and how amenable Trump is. And we say, well, you know what? This is this is like Joe Biden's better than Donald Trump. And it's just, we can't even really talk about the people who are going to die because neither candidate would enact uh, Medicare for all. Maybe one of them, you know, Joe Biden will enact if he put enough pressure on him. But we can never know that as it stands. We, I wouldn't rely on that. And so, yeah, it's disrespectful to deny, I think, and just like, you know, just incorrect to deny that like some people who would die under Trump won't die under Joe Biden. That's just the case. However, we nuance poison ourselves by nature of just like our government's inactivity and our government's just obstinance to like you know public opinion and public pressure and like democracy we just you know normalize that they just like if 90 percent of people want something they just won't do it because like two billionaires say we can't have it and like that's just fine i guess you know like so the, the people who say that we can't have medicare for all it's like the people who die because of that they just their stories just never get told those are just deaths that were unavoidable and, that, and that's just not true those or their externalities to the equation like those, well they, they go into a little black box because unfortunately like they like we don't have anyone under the sort of the pragmatic system you know 
know, which is really just an ideological system who is willing to actively like say, okay, well, yeah, you know, these people don't have to die. We have the money. Every other country has managed to do it. Let's just do it. That's the pragmatic adult way. Instead, it just becomes like a version of hemming and hawing. And I mean, I think that we're, again, this goes back to the idea that we have an infinite amount of time to do stuff. It's like, what about the next pandemic? We still won't have Medicare for all then either. Assuming there, you know, assuming like maybe there'll be another coronavirus next year, like, like just another flu. We still won't have, we'll just do this again. But that speaks to the inability for people to think long term or think about the obvious flaws in our system. Because even if you talk about like this flitting back and forth between like the Republicans and Democrats, you know, like clockwork, people talk about how terrible coronavirus the pandemic has been under Donald Trump. But it's just like you have to at least recognize how like random it was that the coronavirus didn't start like January 22nd, 2017. Like it could have been any time. It's like the, the next pandemic could be on the first day of the Republican president's presidency, and they'll probably be just as far right, if not more far right, or analogously far right to Donald Trump, and it'll be just another fucking disaster. And they'll be like, well, we couldn't prevent this because we've just accepted this, this, this paradigm that's a cycle of Republican and Democrat. And, you know, I mean, it's frustrating because it just doesn't make any sense. And then you have Americans who sit there and they look at Europe and they say, how can people in Italy, when they had such a big outbreak, now go outside? And it's like, because they have a real, go- they have a real government, they, they, you know? <laughs> I'm I don't sorry, want one like, of those, damn it. <laughs> they, don't, they really don't want one of those. When you told them that like other countries, like people got stuff in return for their taxes, they thought you were talking about witchcraft. How much we hear about coronavirus in the future, I think is very directly tied to how much we can insulate the most comfortable populations from having to deal with the effects of it. And I don't think we're going to be able to do that because even if they're not dying, they're going to be inconvenienced. And if there's one thing that centrists hate more than dying, it's being mildly inconvenienced because yeah, it's, them, like they, it's basically the same thing. They're able to work from home, right. but they got those <laughs> bastard kids with them. And like, it, it's only cute the first couple times they storm in during the interview. Now, now it's not cute anymore. And they don't want to be in the, on live television smacking the shit out of their kids. So we've got to get these schools back open sooner than later. I mean, that's, it's what it feels like sometimes when I'm watching this, just because it seems totally irrational to even be considering it. And they're having well paid professionals come on the, t- like, I've seen even some medical people come on and be like, yeah, you know, I'd like to send my kid to school too. And like, it's just like, wait, why? I don't let's like let's not reinforce that and then like i've seen also recently talking about kind of exploiting the aspect of that there are some students that do need in school uh attention and need like the apparatus of the actual campuses but they can't even use them because the camp the, these various you know school grounds are in deplorable conditions in many cases in the most uh, the cities and towns that need the need it the most so like the places where the schools provide a large portion of the calories that the students are able to consume in a day or the schools that provide uh, uh, either just a place to be so that they're safe from the community or also for special needs children in order to have the type of in-person kind of stuff that those are just some of the things that like we don't really like it's being exploited in order to push the idea that everybody should go back to school because there is a small group of people that need their kids to go back to school so that they're not inconvenienced by this whole thing and that's what's getting ridiculous and part of that is then sending all those uh, kids the other kids parents to, to work so that they can get their hair cut go to the restaurants and do those types of things this is a lot of offloading of other necessary public infrastructure. This is the school trying to fill a gap that has been left by like rapid fucking defunding because like yeah you know people need to send their kids to school because they can't afford to feed their kids like three meals a day. It's like but you know 
that's like both an issue of like okay well why aren't there other programs that are supposed to be doing like why that all being concentrated in just like the school if not because it's not a practical reason and why in this fucking pandemic situation are we so incapable of just like showing even the a modicum of dynamic ability at our society it's like you know people are saying okay well yeah but what are we gonna do about the kids and feeding them and shit like if you don't open the schools like anything else it's like literally <laughs> anything any other just give them food right like can you do can you just get like it's like no if it's outside of that this paradigm people can't even imagine it and the people who think america is great who aren't like literal millionaires usually only think that because they can afford to like live a, a sort of like pseudo lordship over a servant class right and so like a lot of this is putting people back to work putting people back taking care of your dumbass kids putting people back to you know uh like picking your groceries or like doing what and not having to like essentially spend time with yourself <laughs> like spend time with yourself and recognize how like empty our lives have become working nine to five jobs plus commute plus the stuff that we have to do just to maintain our essentially like bodily functions like grocery shopping and laundry and bathing and working out people don't have any hobbies besides playing like they have slaves it's just like i said yeah, like, that's the only hobby the people have I was just going to say, part of the problem is like the giving people money so that they are giving people food or giving people money so that their rent gets paid doesn't help the people that are complaining about the things not having like not being open and stuff. It's like, go ahead. No, I'm just gonna say, very few people have hobbies nowadays. I want to talk about what people are missing, you know, just like online that don't require uh, like a very specific servant class to exist like a, a mm-hmm. like a class of like incredibly precarious even more so than the rest of us like largely incre- rather incredibly fungible workers like you know sir like waitresses servers like backroom cooks like uh fucking child care workers you know people who are on the front line every day and then, you know obviously people like me who are like i want gym to be open like you know gym workers just like people who work retail it's like so you know people are missing rooftop bars and going to restaurants and like they're missing like going to Disney World and having people be forced to like sm- like honestly it sounds like people are just a miss- missing emotional labor having people have being able to buy emotional labor from people it's like that's like that's just it that people are people are missing have being able to engage with people who have no option but to treat them nicely because their kids fucking suck and they don't have to treat them nicely you know and so like you know it's america's just uniquely unsuited for this like our just our definition of fun is just like our definition of liberty and freedom it's just rooted in the oppression and domination of others like i can't imagine going to a restaurant and it's just like being served by some like sad fucking like artist or college student or just a professional server and when they're wearing a mask and they're worried about getting sick or doing that shit like i I can't imagine having a good time doing that but i know for some perverts they probably get off on that (laughs) you know like it's it's like you know like it's like being the fucking the lord of a castle during the black plague and watching all your fucking like serfs like fucking pick carrots while they die they drop dead in the fields well and because like in a lot of cases like that particular group of people is in many cases that's their work-life experience to some degree there's somebody lording over them and this is the closest thing they get to it's kind of like the you know i can't wait till i grow up and i can you know treat my kids like my parents treat me kind of thing or treat my parents like my kids or whatever you know it's like a revenge mentality and a vengeance which goes back to uh your, to our point earlier i guess and about kind of how we understand justice and punitive justice and uh how that manifests not just domestically with the police and not just uh internationally with the military but then at the very local domestic level in the house with uh, how we uh 
both the how parents and children interact and then how those uh, that interaction expands outside of the household. One of the things I think is interesting, right, is that this conversation sprang out of that 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 topic. And it's for the reasons that we've been discussing that I don't think electoralism works. Right. I don't think you can have a society that functions in this manner that thinks the way that the Americans do and actively sit here and pretend like voting in election in an election is going to do anything unless you're voting for a party that's specifically saying we recognize these faults, we see where this is going, and we need to move away from that and do X, Y, and Z in order to make sure that everybody's doing better. And I feel this at the local level as well. Again, being from Seattle, I have the luxury of being able to point to Socialist Alternative and to point to Shama Sawant. And to point to Nikita Oliver and to point to these people that have kept up a really radical organizing tradition and are actually winning, like winning gains for the working class. But where else do we see that? Where else do we actually see? And we and, I, and before anybody that listens to the show hops in my fucking mentions and says anything about DSA. <laughs> I'm not allowed in the DSA anymore. I've, I've had sex with too many people in the DSA. I can't, I can't, I can't, go, to any of the me- I can't go to any of the meetings like, without running into somebody. But like real quick, because oh, I just want to, I want to finish up on this just because like within this too, right? I'd seen a, a meme earlier, right? And it was that Sailor Moon format with like Tuxedo Mask and Sailor Moon. And it had to do with Bernie Sanders. And they were just like, you all you've done it was like my work here is done it's like all you've done is you know pull back actual radical youth who could have been organized to doing something different into the arms of the democratic establishment and then dipped and that's really effectively all that's really happened with a lot of what Sanders going on people tout dsa like it's some radical group but it's not it's like i'm gonna be real with you a lot of dsa folks i know are also members of the democratic party what is the what is dsa actually doing to affect real substantial change in local communities and then also as a broader national coalition. What the fuck is going on there? Not a goddamn thing, right? So I don't, I just, I I say all that to say that we really have to think about how we're gonna move forward. The world is ending. People are going to continue dying, you know, and and an absurd number of people are gonna die. An absurd number of people have already died due to an entirely preventable uh, outbreak of the pandemic, right? We could have contained it, right? We could have done these things. A lot of these deaths have been preventable. And so I think it's amazing that in the face of all of this, in the face of all of the US, in all of US history, that we're still having an argument about, well, electoralism is the way to go. I just don't see it happening because we don't have any of the infrastructure to support any kind of real radical change or a real radical party in the US. I was going to say, I mean, I agree with you. I think electoralism, to talk about that right now, when like the both, neither candidate has come out and fully supported like Medicare for all, which would have undoubtedly done a lot to mitigate that damage. If you can compare us even vaguely to the, you know, to other countries with that kind of infrastructure is is ridiculous because both parties, you know, both parties have abandoned us. And I think that's the part that makes, you know, makes me wary of electoralism. I'll put it this way. Like the part that is frightening is that can you really say that like the like, that COVID nineteen wasn't like the best thing to happen to the Joe Biden campaign? That like that reality that like, the, you know COVID nineteen and like the pandemic and making sure everyone's at home and Joe Biden gets to stay in his basement that the anti Trump campaign basically handles itself because he just happens to be in charge while the entire country falls apart and no one's paying attention to any of the Democratic mayors who are fucking thing up or Democratic governors who are fucking things up. It's just like you know. It's frightening that we can have a party that can benefit so heavily from a 
plague killing hundreds of thousands of people and that and and they can benefit not by like actively fully supporting like policies that would fucking help us but just by like not being the ones attributable to like being in power even though they actually are yeah they celebrated like, in song when more- like the republicans tried to vote or tried to destroy obamacare like oh see now you guys are gonna lose an election and it's like that is that is their bread and butter is just uh, Republicans doing what they promised to do, which is basically prove that government doesn't work. And so it works and like Democrats proved their our campaign on fighting Republicans and promising to lose. Yeah, I mean I mean that goes back to the post office. The government doesn't work when you don't fund it. You know, they try to manufacture the same kind of arguments about social security too. It's like, oh social security is running out. It's not liquid and no one's gonna be able to retire. It's like okay, that's not the real story though. But you know if you tell a real story, people like realize that hey, uh social security is the most popular, most successful program in American history and you if you touch it, you know, we'll be tied you. But like if you first if you fuck it up first and then everyone hates it, then, yeah, of course, you can privatize it. You can replace it with a 401k and everyone can like fucking lose their money. The next time the stock market dips one point. That to me is not necessarily a condemnation of electoralism, broadly speaking. But in America, we have one party that is capable of benefiting quite heavily by mass death. And then the other party is also in <laughs> other and other parties happy to oblige them. It's just like the other party, the Republican Party is happy to oblige the Democratic Party by facilitating mass death. And the Democratic Party is, is happy because the Democratic Party is happy to keep working with them in the future. It's like even if the Republican Party is implicated 100 percent right or wrong in the deaths of everyone who could have been prevented or every preventable death that could have happened under uh, COVID-19, the Democratic Party will still up and down argue that you have to work with them in the future i don't know like I, it feels like we don't have time for this anymore i think it's also important to kind of highlight the oblivious to history kind of aspect that's at play here is like even if you accept the idea of electoralism and all that stuff is like obama was supposedly the most progressive president that we were going to have and definitely like he was to the left of joe biden during the, his their primary when they ran against each other and so it was like he's probably still to the left of joe biden so that was the that was the best we had at the presidential level and then the congress was he had a super majority practically uh uh unprecedented for democrats in the modern political era and he had that supermajority. and the most like the most radical thing he was able to do was able to get uh, obamacare passed wasn't able to deal with sandy hook in a way that got gun legislation done wasn't able to do any of the kind of climate change stuff he, he increased the amount of contracts that the federal government you know subsidized with uh, renewable energy producers but only superficially and and not even meeting the expectations that he set for himself so if if that's the pathway if you know if that's where electoralism is as you said we don't have the time like we just know that we know the science and if we don't have the time like i don't understand it just doesn't make it doesn't it it it's like you said it it's just confounding that people aren't processing is that isn't an option or if if you view that as an option you're consigning hundreds of millions of people to death and dislo- er, dislocation it i mean honestly it's a combination of two things i mean it's a combination of a lot of things but for my my sort of analysis it's two things the first is it's generational politics like it's it's this sort of liberal belief that like again that yeah. the that justice like you know the long arc of justice bends uh <laughs> in fa- or rather the arc of truth whatever I don't, what's the fuck you know the mount the mount king jr quote I, I i'm a bad black person Leave me alone. i don't know the quote <laughs> I, don't, I don't know every martha king jr quote top my fucking head which you have to if you're black because people will be like well martha king jr uh, you know he said the vote for joe biden and I'm, like, <laughs> I'm just like he definitely did not uh, I can guarantee you that motherfucker did not say that. But no, it's just like, you know, it's this overabundant face of time. It's like this faith like that, you know, that racism, that social problems will be bred out of the population because things are just sort of, you know, without 
proactivity moving towards this more egalitarian uh, future teleologically because that's just the way things are you know not understanding like how systemic issues reproduce themselves of course and then there's also just like it's our media exists to coddle middle managers it's like i i fucking had to watch well i didn't have to but i chose to watch hamilton and like i watched it it was just boring for me it was boring but i was like oh yeah this is no different than any other you know piece of media we have news or critical or otherwise it just exists to coddle the ego of the liberal and part of that you know part of the liberals experience is this kind of narrative that like there will always be time to live your dreams in the future like there will always be no don't worry about working this dead-end ass like middle manager job that makes you like fucking feel incredibly uh depressed like just do this for 30 or 40 or 50 years ingratiate yourself enough with power get enough power over other people and then you'll have time to write your book and you know you'll there'll always be time to write your book there'll always be time to live your dreams and that sounds fine you know it sounds like motivational when you're telling people that like you know look at all these writers who wrote their first book at 70 plus but like in reality you're not those people it's like that's an exception that proves the rule and like if you're not doing this shit now you're probably never going to do it but like that it's an erotic immature obsession with it they're like well when i grow up when our society grows up things will just be better but that's just they know it's washing of one's hands with actually having to like do anything proactively and that then that infects how we view other phenomena like we go okay well you know once a society grows up once the democratic party you know is able to just sort of lightly turn over the reins of power because the nancy pelosi's and the schumers of the world are just gone they've retired or they've died like then we'll be able to have a real leftist party but like it'll just be too late for that It'll be too late, you know, again, maybe not too late in the sense that we'll all be dead, but too late in the sense that a large swath of the country that otherwise wouldn't have gone under will be gone. But of course, you know, talking about those places, talking about those things and people and places that did not have to like be fucking sacrificed is, you know, it's idealism. You know, it's idealism. Despite the fact that the infrastructure exists in other places, like talking about it here is idealism. And anything other than like it's back and forth Republican Democrats is like, is just it's 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 infuriating. It's something like Ruth Bader Ginsburg. I don't know if you can look at her getting she gets an infection every other fucking week. No offense. That, that's what happens. That's what happens when you're over eighty. <laughs> just like that's just what happens when you're over eighty. And at the very least, the Democratic Party could, it, you know, could treat the Supreme Court with the level of importance that it tells us we have to. But it won't even do that. And I mean, that's another issue with electoralism. It's like they tell us, well, we got to vote for you know Joe Biden, amenable Supreme Court. You got to vote for that. It's like, but I know they'll they'll fucking nominate some ninety year old to it. It's frustrating because they don't even visibly adhere to the same narratives and standards that they that they use like as a cudgel for their voters they tell them that the that the, that the republican parties are an existential threat they just want you dead they want gay people dead they want women fucking pregnant and chained to the stove they want black people back in chains they know x x y and z but also they're our best friends and they're our colleagues and god damn you if you disrespect them it's like it's like the supreme court is the most important buy in the world you know it's enough for you just to vote for a democratic party it's like okay well you're gonna nominate a judge who's young and has a good chance of being there on there forever and once you're in power or all the judge who are all the judges who are gonna you know otherwise die or need to retire in four like and let's say after you're out of office are they gonna retire early so you can replace them <laughs> no none of that shit we're gonna nominate a bunch of 90 year olds and like if, if one of them gets fucking if one of them gets diphtheria they're gonna stay on <laughs> until the end and it's just like that's not to say you should abstain from electoralism it's just to say that there might not be an answer to the problem you're trying to solve within that system and you have to be aware of what the limitations of electoralism is if someone's telling you that you can vote for joe biden to stop police brutality they're a fucking liar 
if someone's telling you Joe Biden's going to do something that is in stark uh, opposition to what he's done in the past, they might not. They they might be being optimistic. They might be hoping at the times, like as you know, you know, I think that David Dayan, who when we had when we had him on, made the best argument for like what could happen to Joe Biden from a progressive leftist standpoint, which is that, like, yeah, things might just get so fucking bad that like he has to do something, <laughs> that he has to just do something to prevent like the entire society from collapsing that resembles what leftists want. But even I think you know, and I think that's a bearish argument but i think even under that interpretation like that's just the bare minimum that's like that's just whatever they can do to keep the lights on that's gonna that's totally forgets all the thousands of people who who otherwise who like are going to be dead between like the bare minimum and what is you know literally possible indoctrination in america starts young i remember being five years old in kindergarten being forced to say the pledge of allegiance like if you didn't say it it was a problem like the they the teachers wouldn't force you to do it but they would make loud comments about how you weren't actually like American or you hated the country. And like one of my teachers told me to go back to Africa and some like shit like that, right? Like this is the kind of repercussions that people see when they don't toe the American line. And so you're taught from an early age to ignore history, right? You're not taught history. You're told to ignore it. You're told to get over anything, you know, slavery. Oh, we got to get over it. Anything that doesn't put America in the best light or show America as the victim, we're told to ignore Right. We don't focus on, you know, Vietnam is one of the is, I think, the biggest example of this. Right. We're told about Vietnam, but we're told about Vietnam from the perspective of, oh, my gosh, so many American soldiers died. But we're not told about Vietnam for why America was there and that we were helping a French colonial government fight against a communist revolution. Right. We're not told that, you know, uh, Ho Chi Minh reached out to the president at the time and was just like, hey, can you help us out here? Like, you know, in the U.S. just went in and was like, fuck it, we're going to invade a sovereign nation with France. Just fuck, you know, fuck poor people. Right. He, Ho Chi Minh actually utilized language from the Declaration of Independence and thought, hey, the Americans had this spirit of independence and revolution. They'll be with us. Yeah, so every time you liberals think about throwing the Republican hypocrisy in their face and thinking that's going to win you an argument, no. They've been rejecting that for decades going. But we're not taught these things in context, right? We're not taught any of these things. So we're told we're hyper-focused, especially, right, and we've talked about a lot on the show, about uh, today's media culture, right? We're so hyper-focused on what it, what's going to be in the immediate news cycle. And because the news has moved to 24-7, all day, every day, there's always something new there, right? It's easy to really forget things. And so we don't look at any kind of context or history. That's why Joe Biden, his whole his whole history has been able to be completely removed from context. And they just say, well, Joe Biden's better than Trump because of Obama, right? But and that ignores 40 plus years of, of the actual governance and things that he said and done. And when you bring those up, you're it's what about is suddenly, right? It's, you know, it's such a ridiculous, it's just such a ridiculous metric, but Americans are so heavily indoctrinated uh, to have short attention spans and so heavily indoctrinated to believe that capitalism is the only thing that could ever work. It's impossible to have these conversations. And it leads, again, I think, to issues with electoralism, particularly at the federal level. I think if there's things that are going on in your local level, you should absolutely be as involved as you can because you're more likely to change hearts and minds at a local level than you are at a federal level, right? You should be involved when and where you can. But again, I just don't see much point. At this point, we're all gonna die. The US has done everything that they can to destroy the climate. People celebrated when Kamala Harris dunked on Joe Biden for basically being a segregationist. Now they're like, you know, Kamala Harris would make a good VP. Right. <laughs> And ignore all of Kamala Harris's incredibly problematic history, right? Like, yeah, it's just it's it. 
compounding ridiculousness would go on. Shit, if you're going to go back to Africa, you better go soon because they might not let us, uh, let us back in. They might ban our asses too soon. But no, I mean, like, honestly, when it comes to the whole Joe Biden thing, you talk to people about Joe Biden's history, and sometimes they think that you're lying. And I think this is, I think that there is a version of, like, liberal out there, the version of voter out there who, like, you know, like, yeah, it's just cognitive dissonance. Like, you tell them the truth, and they just can't, they can't incorporate it into their viewpoints. So they think that you're lying to them. But then there are just the people out there who like you know you tell them joe biden's history you tell them like you know you confront them with like the facts and logic you know not to use the sort like no ben shapiro meme and like yeah they they fully understand them but like not the sort of like not the same argument as uh angela davis but like if you don't believe that joe biden has the possibility to do better like if you don't believe that joe biden has the possibility to like be a more progressive president than like literal like dog shit like then really you just have to give up hope it's like i mean like and it sounds shitty because like i mean and like well you don't have to give up hope but like within the liberal paradigm which so heavily emphasizes electoralism then yeah then there's nothing you can really do it's like like then like then you might as well just check the fuck out and so if you're not going to check out it you know it requires you to you know have a suspension of disbelief that is borderline irrational but like you know otherwise you know otherwise uh you know, like, what else is there to do? It's like, what else is there to do besides, like, you know, if you don't believe Joe Biden has a pot, can do any better than Trump, what can you do? I, you know, but so, like, it's so you get people who are just like, okay, well, I know I'm this is a Hail Mary, this is bullshit, but like, I just, you know, what else? And I think that, like, that's a unfortunate paradigm to be stuck within because people don't realize that there are other, there are other options out there besides national elections you know like that a lot of what they're talking about whether it be police reform or school reform or you know education reform or prison reform or whatever can be if not entirely litigated at the local level or state level can be at least partially mitigated at that level but you know we've been going on for a long time last thoughts everybody i was talking to somebody today while listening to talk radio and i was talking to him about climate change he's a right-wing republican person who i uh, interacted with a couple of times in my life and he's a family friend and i was telling him like about my work and about what i did and what how i know about science of climate change and how you know like we're going to lose large portions of the land that we currently are living on in the near future and he's like how come i don't know any about this i'm like well it's not profitable and so i kind of opened his eyes that had an interesting moment where he's like yeah, I got to know more about this. Send me in some directions. And this is a guy who's been a Republican for like a very long period of time who I've never really had productive conversations with before. Um, but on the radio, there, there was an ad for, I think it was during Sean Hannity's show or something, but they were talking about how, you know, the Republicans need to come together because, you know, the, the, there's a guy running for office right now. He's the most communist socialist that's ever been running for office, running on the most left platform the country's ever seen. He's siding with Antifa, and he's a communist. And you know who that guy is? And I was like, did, did Bernie get back in the race? Like, what the fuck? And they go, Joe Biden. And it was just like the disconnect, the actual reality disconnect that the country's electoral politics are act- operating under means that, you just can't function. There's no functioning in electoralism at all on a national level. So I just thought that was fucking well, I mean, hysterical. Because that, that, even though Joe Biden is is, is I mean, a, a 90s Republican, 
he's now painted as a communist. Well, I mean, it is surprising, but I mean, is it, I mean, it is funny, but is, is it surprising that at this point, like that the narrative supersedes reality? I mean, that's really what it is. No. It's like just, it's just become lazier and lazier and more and more apparent because like we just had, we're, you know, we're just so far beyond that at this point. Mm-hmm.